Well, turn in your Bibles with me now. Turn to Luke chapter 176 through 79. We're going to come back where we stopped to start with. And last week we looked at why the coming of Jesus as a man was such a great thing for us based on our incredible need that we as sinful human beings were in such a hopeless, such a dark place that the, the light of Christ coming to the earth really shines out so brightly in our darkness. And the Bible uses that, that word picture for us as well a lot. In fact, uh, when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, found out that his son was to be the forerunner, the one who was to, to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah, Luke 1, 76 through 79 were part of his response, where here he, he's speaking to his, his son who's just been born. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We fit Zechariah's description of us there perfectly, right? Uh, it talks about us being those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's why Jesus light. We say, oh, now that's something because that's so much what we need is him and what it was he came to give us. And so Jesus didn't come just to give us an enhanced life, did he? Just to make our life a little better or more enjoyable or to add on happiness or whatever else. He came because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He came because we were headed for hell and in eternity separated from God and in punishment. He came because we had no way of doing that for ourselves. That's what makes Jesus coming. And therefore, any celebration we have of Jesus' incarnation, his birth, so amazing. Now today I want us to, to take a step back and, and then look at the circumstances into which Jesus came. Because if, if darkness is what describes the spiritual situation of all humanity. What, what, were the, what was going on in the world and in Israel that, that Jesus came into? And of course, we can only touch on that briefly, right? In the little bit of time we have this morning. But Luke chapter 1, verse 5, describes the times that Jesus, when Jesus was born in this way. In the days of Herod the king, or Herod the king, of Judea. Just that first phrase of verse 5. That, that's how he, he brings us into the whole story of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist, which then leads into the announcement of the birth of Jesus. But in the days of Herod, king of Judea. You've probably heard a lot about Herod over the years from different Christmas sermons, right? Probably contradictory things, but you never know when we preachers get going, we want to find all the, all the great details, right? But I think you've learned enough to know his character, right? 
Uh, we learn in the Bible that he was the man who was so jealous of his position with this title king that he murdered all the babies in Bethlehem out of fear from a report from the wise men. Right? We know that, that account. You know, the men came from the east saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod, who had spent his whole life lining things up and, and politically maneuvering and even killing his own family members, even marrying someone in order to have the right position. He, he actually <clears throat> married someone who had connections with Israel's past Jewish leaders, really high priests who acted like kings uh, in, in the times before that. To, to, to get himself lined up, he, he, he spent a lot of time with, with the Roman rulers, you know, trying to line up with just the right one, which meant he also, he also lined up with the wrong one sometimes, and he had to backpedal and, and, and gain favor with the other Roman rulers to get himself named as king of the Jews. Although, interestingly, he wasn't Jewish, not ethnically. He was actually a descendant of Esau. An Idumean would be what they would call him in, that, in those days. Uh, but during the time when, when Israel shook off uh, the Greek uh, overlords for a while. They they came into you know the, that area where where Esau's descendants lived, uh, also called Edom in the Bible, and and basically pressed them into saying that they were converting to Judaism. Well, that's what happened to, to Herod's family, and so Herod professed to believe in the one true God of Israel, but his character and his actions. And the things he did didn't go along with the God that is worshipped in Judaism. And so he pretended to be a believer in the God of Israel. But he was so jealous of that position, so greedy for power, he had one of his own wives, well, maybe more than one of his own wives murdered, a couple of his sons, a couple of brother-in-laws. He did whatever it took to hold on to power and what he thought was the most important thing to him. On the other hand, he was also a grand builder. He wanted to impress the people that he ruled over. And he, he took on great building projects. Uh, uh, Masada, you may have heard of, was one of, part of that was his paranoia because he thought, well, if, if things go wrong with Rome, I might need a place to go hide. And other, other uh, fortresses. But it's probably the most important thing he took on was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, a massive expansion and refurbishing project that turned it into the glorious place physically that it was in Jesus' time. That's the days of Herod, uh, also called Herod the Great, um, although the greatness was mostly, I think, in his own mind. They were difficult times that Jesus was born into. Uh, the people of Israel, under the pressure of Rome, were continually struggling to maintain the identity of their nation. Uh, their practices for, really for centuries before this, had been under pressure. Uh, they were strange to the Roman world, by the way. You know, the Greeks had, had had their whole pantheon of gods, right, before the Romans. Tried to force, you know, the Jews to worship the, those. For the Romans, they, they kind of just renamed those same gods. It was really strange, these people who had only worshipped this one God. Uh, these strange people 
who wouldn't work one day a week. These strange people who had all of these unique ways of dressing and eating and living. They didn't fit in with the, the whole Roman culture and all of that. And the immoral practices of the culture in which they were in under Rome ate away at the fabric of their society. And so in Jesus' day, there were groups like one called the Zealots, and they worked to overthrow the Romans in their, in their uh, rule over the Jews. There were people who were assassins who would walk around with knives under their robes ready to kill uh, even the Jewish leaders who were collaborating with the Romans. See, see, Jesus came at a time of political stress and turmoil and division. The Jewish people were, were divided into lots of different camps. There wasn't a unified approach to being Jewish in this time. Uh, there were some major religious groups you're probably familiar with, the, you know, the Sadducees, and many of the priests were part of this group, but the Sadducees, they had the, they had the political power. It was their people who, under the Greeks, had had quite a lot of political power, and, and in the process of holding on to that, they'd actually jettisoned a lot of truth. They didn't believe in the supernatural or angels or demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were, they were the theological liberals of their day. And then we're very familiar, of course, with the Pharisees, who were, were very legalistic conservatives, so they were people of the book, right? They knew a lot of Bible knowledge. They also knew a lot about traditions that had been piled on top of that. You know, building a hedge, they, they called it. To build a hedge around the law so we don't get close to breaking it. Well, as Jesus would point out to them later, with all of your hedges you put around, you actually have ended up making the actual law that God gave you of no value. You've actually ended up violating it. You've just turned it into a system of, well, how do we get around the law and still look religious? There were Hellenists. Hellenists were people who were very much about assimilating into the culture. Um, and of course, during Greek times, and that's the idea of Hellenism, is to, to take on the Greek culture, which survived on into Roman times. You know, they, were, they were pressured. They were sometimes... Under, under threat of violence or death, told you must assimilate into the, this Greek culture. Now, under, under Rome, it wasn't quite the same, but there were people who, like in every culture, people who claim to believe in God, but they really want to get along with the culture, right? And so that's what they're all about. And so the Hellenists were, were kind of the, the chameleons of the Jewish people. And, of course, they're always pragmatists who they take, whatever it is that they need to, that they think, to get what it is they think they need. And there were, of course, the apathetic. It's like, oh, all of this Jewish stuff. The whole mix was there in the days that Jesus came and was born. And so much of what was happening in the world at that time was a vivid illustration, demonst demonstration, really, of the spiritual condition that we looked at last week that mankind was dead in their trespasses and sins, right? Under the penalty of God, having turned their back on the life giver, they didn't experience real life. 
A savior was desperately needed, and it was clear in those days. But Jesus came, and all those things, you think, why, why would the Son of God show up right in the middle of all that? Why not wait for a better time, a calmer time, a more peaceful time? Well, it turns out he came in just the exact time that God had planned out. You might remember last, last year when we were going through the book of Daniel, found out that God had a very precise way of, of laying things out. Uh, turn with me back to Daniel chapter 2. And if, uh, and if you could put that slide up there. You might remember in Daniel chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It's thinking. Okay, well, I'll keep talking while it thinks. Uh, but you remember uh, that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he dreamt of this huge statue. Now, let me just read Daniel 2, 31 through 45 to you. Uh, because this really fits into the, uh, the whole place where the Jewish people were now at the time of Jesus' coming. <clears throat> there it says, You, O king, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued to look until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay." As the toes and the feet were partly iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush 
and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And as much as you, that you saw a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is true. I would go back to that because God in advance through Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel and Daniel recorded it and the Jewish people had with them in their book how God was going to play out their history. Well, it was history, a lot of it by the time Jesus came. It was all, almost all in the future, right? But if you remember, head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, that's when Daniel was living. He's talking to this man. He says, you are the head of gold, this this." strongest, most organized of all of these world empires. But they all come to an end, right? And of course, ones that don't acknowledge God come to an end for a reason and and under judgment. And that happened as you moved from the head of gold down to uh, the the kingdom of silver. That being the the Medo-Persian empire that, that succeeded them. And during that time, they went from being under an empire that said, you come, you people come and and be where we are, and we will dominate you here, to, no, you need to go back to the lands where you were from. You need to work in your fields. You need to, to create wealth, and then you need to send tribute to us. Also, you need to worship the gods that you worship, and you need to pray for us to your gods. And so we'll even fund the building of your temples, and then you in in turn pray for us. And so the people of Israel under Cyrus, predicted by this, predicted by God, you know, hundreds of years before it ever happened, Cyrus gave gave the decree. They went back to the land of Israel. They reestablished there, but still serving under a large empire that told them what they could do, what they couldn't do. Of course, then Alexander the Great comes along, right? Says, I'm going to take over the world. And by the time he was 33 years old, he'd done that as far as the the known world, what they would have considered the civilized world. And then he died, leaving it split up among his four generals, right? And then you have Israel living through that period as, as two of those parts of his kingdom fought back and forth over the top of this little nation, Israel, that God had called out for himself. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies, as they wanted more of of the part of the Greek empire for themselves, fought back and forth. It was during this time, of course, that, that, that the pressure was on, especially when the northern kingdom pushed down over Israel and said, you will become like us. You will take on our gods and stop the worship of your God. And people who practiced the things taught to them in the scriptures were punished, oftentimes with brutal death. And it was during those times that you had one of their last real moments of glory. Because as during that time they started really enforcing that under Antiochus IV, or Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, as he called himself, Antiochus the Glorious One, right? That's what he, he, he likened himself to be. The people called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Madman. 
because of his, his I mean, he actually made Herod look not too bad with some of the things that he did and just tried to destroy the worship of the one true God and destroy any of the Jewish people who would follow that. And it was during that time that you had the Maccabees rise up. Um, the short version is Judas Maccabeus, or the hammer. Judas the hammer and his brothers gathered people around them, and they actually threw off their Greek overlords and for a period of a generation or so actually ruled themselves. That was their place of glory, right? They got rid of the overlords for a while. And they went in to rededicate the temple where Antiochus had gone in and put idols, where he had sacrificed a, a pig on the altar to desecrate the altar. But they didn't have enough oil for the lampstand. Remember that story or that account? Okay. And so, but they went ahead and lit them until they could purify the right oil, the olive oil, just the right way. And that's where we get what holiday now? Hanukkah, right? Which, by the way, starts tonight. Okay. And that was one of their great times. Because they, they celebrated a miracle because God made those, uh, that, that uh, candle or the lamp stand continue to burn for eight days, even though they only had, I think it was enough for one day, correct? Okay. And they were able to purify the temple. They were able to restore the worship of the one good, true God to the temple. That was a time of glory. Called the Feast of Dedication in the Bible, and Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. Okay. Great time of glory. But of course, things went downhill from there. Uh, the priests were the most influential people. There was no king, but they took on the title of prince. They didn't actually call themselves kings, but they acted like kings as priests. Oh, there's a problem there, right? Okay. And you had all this political intrigue and murder and all those kind of things. And finally, in in BC, 63 B.C., the Romans came in and put an end to all that. They now became the new overlords. So it's all kinds of things have happened to the Jewish people, right? And they look back and say, here, here was one moment of glory, right? But they've, they've lived through the, the kingdom of gold, the kingdom of silver, the kingdom of brass or bronze. And now they're in, they're living in the time of the kingdom of iron. That's their history. And it's exactly when God said it would happen. Jump ahead in Daniel to chapter 9. Let's, let's review a little bit there as well. Verses 24 through 27. Uh, the, uh, chapter 2 is toward the beginning of Daniel's life. He was a younger man, first in Babylon. <clears throat> Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is when God tells him about the timing of the things that are to come. And it says 70 weeks, or 70 sevens, and I believe that's 70 groups of seven years, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and to discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, here's an important phrase, Messiah the Prince. Messiah is that term, it's very important. Only used a couple of times actually in the Bible, and this is one of them. 
until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 69 weeks, right? All those weeks except for one. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah, or the anointed one, will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And we spent a bit of time when we went through Daniel on this, these verses. But remember, you've got 483 years until Messiah until the Messiah is cut off, okay? Messiah was cut off when Jesus was crucified, right? So we have 483 years. He gave a starting point and said, that's when Messiah is going to come in. And different people have, have taken this and calculated and said, oh, well, Jesus came in to Jerusalem on a donkey on exactly this date. I'm not going to go there because ancient calendars and events and stuff are pretty hard to deal with. I think God did have an exact date in mind when Jesus would come. And so Jesus came into Jerusalem, into the world, with all of its troubles, exactly when God said he was supposed to. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just a random occurrence. But not only had God planned it out, but he said to, to Israel ahead of time, he's coming. He's coming. You should be looking for him. But around this time, I don't know if very many of them did, but they were told. And it was God's timing. And Galatians 4 talks about that, if you turn there with me. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And here, here Paul is in the midst of an argument about why the Jewish people who believe in Christ in Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah, are no longer under the law. So we've got a little bit of the context mixed in here that, that uh, we're not going to have time to explain all of that, but he says, he's speaking of the Jewish people as children under a tutor or a, a trainer. And, that's, and the law is their trainer. So he says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So he's here in those first three verses, he describes the condition of Israel. All those years with the law of Moses, they're being pointed toward the Savior. They're being pointed toward the righteousness of God, which they're not able to accomplish. They're being trained to understand what is truly important that's coming, the coming of Messiah. Then we get to verse 4, and it says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive 
the adoption as sons, that position as full-grown adult children with all the rights and privileges thereof, right? And so here, Paul is showing that when the fullness of time, when, when everything was just right, when God had lined everything up through all the kingdoms, through all the rulers, through all that, through the, the religious and the political wranglings, he knew when the time was filled up and it was time for Messiah to come on the scene. So that those who were under the law could be brought out from under it and become not functioning like children with rules in the home, but like adult children who are partners with their, their, their father in the work that he is doing. Not only the Jewish people, but all of us as well who are Gentiles, right? Who put our faith in the Jewish Messiah who is also the Savior of the world. But let's look at the time in which Jesus came then from the perspective of being just the right time. This was the perfect timing for God's plan. For one thing, there was a, you could say there was a bridge over some of the gaps that were put in place by the Tower of Babel. We talked about that last week how God graciously separated the people out by language and by distance to keep us from, from reaching the point of judgment like the flood, right? To keep us from being able to collaborate about evil. Well, now in order to bring the message that his son had come and paid the price for our sin, he has, he has been creating bridges across those gaps so now the good news can travel as well. For instance, the Greek language. You know, the Greeks came and they forced their culture and everything on the people that they subjugated. Part of that was the Greek language. And so people took on that language out of sometimes necessity, other times out of convenience, but it became the trade language of the world. And so you could then go all over the empire, not just the Greek empire, but then continuing into the Roman empire and find people who spoke Greek. Many, many people who spoke Greek. Since Babel, there had never been such a great bridge of language among the various groups, people groups of the world. Then with the coming of Jesus, when the message needed to go everywhere, remember he told his disciples, go into all the nations, right? Now they could find people who spoke Greek and share that. And also during this time, there was a translation of the Old Testament scriptures called the Septuagint, right? They're quoted by many of the New Testament writers, and even Jesus himself. There are also bridges as far as the distances between people and, and the ability to get to people, the Roman roads. And you're probably familiar with the fact that the Romans built this amazing road system, wide roads covering vast areas. What was their purpose? The gospel? No. They wanted their armies to be able to get where they needed to go, right? They wanted to be able to, to, you know, if there was a hot spot, they could send troops, they could squash that rebellion wherever it was, or they could get their, their troops to the place where they wanted to expand the empire, okay? But it turns out it worked great for increasing travel and the ability to get all, all around the empire. And so people could, could then travel and take the gospel, and with relative safety because the power of Rome which, which pressed down its enemies 
also didn't want there to be lots of crime and things disrupting life. And so you had what they called the Roman peace. It was an enforced peace, but you know what? The gospel benefited because you could travel, you could go and take the gospel to places all over. And then there was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which was a, a huge bridge over, over what happened at Babel. Now, there's a sense symbolically, but also practically, on the day of Pentecost, because there were all these people from all over, the, all over the known world that came for the Feast of Pentecost, and the disciples spoke, and they, they heard them in their own languages, and they understood the gospel in their heart languages, right? Not just Greek. Kind of symbolic to say God's reaching out to people of all backgrounds and all language groups and all of that. But he's also putting his spirit in the people who live all over the world, those who will believe. He will unite them. And, and they're, they're, Even before Babel, there was not that kind of bringing together of people, was there? And there's a sense that we can go and we can meet a believer you know, from somewhere in Africa or Asia. And, and there's a bond that we have together, right? So Jesus, in sending the Holy Spirit, bridging that gap over Babel. And so his coming at this time was really critical. And, and, and we'd have this impact then on the world. And by the way, some of that tampering down of evil came with the spread of the church. As the church, with its view of a, of a creator God, who made things with a purpose and with intelligence and with reason, birthed the idea of science. You know, really that came out of the church. The people who did some of our very early science were believers and they realized God is an orderly God. And he created things with design and with a purpose. And you can go out there and you can find it and you can discover what God was doing. And, and, Christians went out and they built hospitals to care for people who couldn't care for themselves, bringing out the idea that, oh, we should take care of those who are struggling or having a hard time. Christians went out and did all kinds of things and, and, and had the idea of a law that comes from God that it's not just what we think should be the law or what the strongest person thinks should be the law, but there's somewhere a right, rights given by the creator to people. Those are ideas and things, just the tip of the iceberg, where God has actually kept us from destroying ourselves as humanity, right? Over then, the years since then. And so God had set all these things in place at just the right time. But not only that, during this time, there were people who hadn't become cynical. There were people who hadn't just gotten lost in, in their uh, ritualism, lost in their legalism. There were people who believed the promises given first to Abraham, right? In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There were people who believed that the descendant of David would come and reign on, on David's throne. There were people who believed that there was going to come one who would be like the Passover lamb and die instead of the ones who were under judgment. All those things that were promised, there were still people. Think about Mary and Joseph, right? They believed the report they were given. Why? Because they believed those promises. They'd been raised to know them in their families. 
Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, they knew that truth, and they believed it, and they were expecting the coming of the Messiah. Nicodemus, one of the, you know, the, the top teachers in the nation, he was looking for that. But let's just let's go, go to Luke chapter 1 again. And just look at what some of these other people who were there and what they said when, when they heard that Jesus was coming. We often hear about Simeon who, who um, saw Jesus in the temple when he was brought to, be, uh, to have the things done according to the law, when he was dedicated, you could say. Luke 1, look at what he says. <clears throat> Verse 20. I'm sorry, I think I've got... I think that's supposed to be chapter 2, not chapter 1, yeah. So go to Luke 2, 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and his, this man was righteous and devout. What's he looking for? All the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Oh, well, the Holy Spirit is active as well, right? Saying, hey, get ready. Get ready. He's coming. Jump down to verse 29. Here's what he said when he, when he picks up Jesus in his arms. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. God has placed people like Simeon. Or like Anna, if you drop down to verses 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the daughter of Asher, and she was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. In other words, the buying Israel out of their terrible position they were in, out of their sin. Okay? There were people like Simeon, like Anna, looking, expectant, saying, hmm, what we've been told in the scripture tells us this maybe is the time. And then, you know what, there were, there were 12, well, actually you could say 13 other important births within this general time period? There's the most important one was Jesus, of course. But it was in this general time period that those who would be Jesus' disciples and his apostles who would be born and would be looking for him, would be expecting him. Um, go, to, go to the book of John, some of the things that we've, we've looked at recently in our study there. John chapter 1. Uh, <clears throat> we have James, John, Peter, and Andrew these, these boys grew up in families that fished for a living. And they grew up learning how to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee and how to mend nets and all those other things. But you know what? They also learned the scriptures. They, they looked and they were expecting. And when Andrew hears about Jesus, look at, at John 1, verses 40 and 41. There it says, and one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brothers. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Oh, there's that term only used a couple of times in the Old Testament. But they're like, oh, here's the one that was promised, which translated means Christ. 
They understood, and they were expectant. But then also some of the other, other disciples, Philip in, in verse 45, goes to his friend Nathaniel. Remember, and Philip found Nathaniel and said, We have found him of whom, the Mos- whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They connected. He said, Moses told us to expect this one, and we have heard him. He's talked to us, and we're, we're connecting the dots, the things that the scriptures say. Yeah, he's the one. Convinced. And having been expecting that. Then Nathaniel, when he meets Jesus, and just speaks to him for a little bit, and Jesus talks about him. You may remember sitting under the tree, right? In verse 49, says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's a perfect time because God had prepared different people. In particular, you know, the 12, and then we have Saul of Tarsus, right, who was born. We don't know the ages of all those men, but maybe shortly after this, right, in the same general time period as Jesus, who were looking, who were ready to say, we're ready to follow him when he shows up. And when he did show up and he said, follow me, they, they, they left it all behind and did that. And a Savior is born into this context. The need was desperate. Every person spiritually dead and hopeless, right? Without Christ. Societies and cultures that they lived in were all in great need. And even the nation that God had set apart for himself and for bringing the Savior into the world was a mess. He was really in confusion in so many ways. When the need for a Savior was highlighted, it was emphasized, it was obvious to anyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear, right? Jesus said that quite a bit, right? You have eyes to, eyes to see? If you have ears to hear? Well, then here's the truth. God had raised up, had prepared, had keyed certain people in to say, you are the one. They were few, but they were there, and their numbers would grow. And he did come. Into that, Jesus, God the Son, infinitely powerful, infinite in knowledge, infinite in place, right? Omnipresent God came down into a little helpless baby to fulfill this amazing plan of God laid out perfectly because of his glory and because he loves you. He loves sinners. He wants them to be redeemed out of that death. And we'll keep talking about that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, We are just amazed at at the abundance of your your work and your planning and your your doing for us and and just the willingness of of Jesus to, to come. Not just, to, not just to be a baby here, but to grow up, live a sinless life, and die in our place. To bear the penalty of sin, the wages of sin that is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. And Help us to marvel 
in that, but not just to marvel, but to believe and then live out a life that, that matches up with what it is he came to give. Help us to not just uh, tuck, tuck uh, salvation, uh, freedom from eternal punishment in our back pocket and then live as we, we think we want, but help us to discover the real life that Jesus came to give, the abundant life, the full life, that can be ours as we know him, as we are in him, and as we learn to come boldly to you and seek to do your will now that we belong to you. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.